to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here. If I didn't meet you on the way in, so glad that you have chosen to worship with us today. Uh, If you are a guest with us today, we're really, really thankful that you're here. And we just want to say thank you for coming. And so one we can do this is uh, you can uh, give us, uh, there's a blue card in your seat. Uh, It gives us a couple ways to get in contact with you. We'd love to follow with you, get to know you, tell you a little bit more about the church. And uh, what you can do is you can take that card, fill it out, and head back to the Connect table back there as you're going out and trade that in for a gift card. We have a Third Cliff Bakery gift card, which is an awesome bakery right on the street. So give us that card. We'll hand you uh, that gift card. And then also we'll send you an email this week with a list of charities. And uh, from that email, there'll be, you can just get to pick, pick which charity you want us to make a donation to. And we will make that donation in your name as a thank you uh, for you being here. So remember, t- take that card, head to the back. Also this morning, if, if you're new with us, we have a gift for you. There are some uh, Genesis uh, journal Bibles and uh, we're going to be going through Genesis for the next uh, several months. And so Matt right there has them in his hand. So if you just want to raise your hand, you have to raise it real high, just kind of do one of these numbers. Uh, if you would like one, Matt would love to give you one um, if you want one of those to kind of follow along. Uh, and this is our gift to you. Um, we, um, and yeah, just as our way of saying thank you for being here. Um, so just be, be sure to grab one. Matt, right over there and there. Um, yeah, just, um, oh, and you can, if you look here, you, there's a whole spot for you to journal along. If you like to take notes and put it all in one place, uh, that's uh, something for you. So be sure to grab one of those. Um, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. Gospel means good news, and the good news, it starts with bad news. We were once separated from God because of our sin, because of our choices, and if we're honest with ourselves, none of us have lived a perfect life, and a perfect life is what it takes to live before God. And so uh, because we couldn't live a perfect life, God sent his own son, Jesus, Jesus to die for us. And in Jesus dying for us, we receive his righteousness in our place, meaning his right standing with God. And we can have a relationship with him. So if you've not entered into that relationship with Jesus, come find me this morning. I'll be standing at the back after the service. I'd love to share with you how to do so, how to enter into that relationship. Secondly is community. We were made for relationships. Uh, We were made to uh, help each other grow. And we do this by getting together in community groups throughout the week uh, to help each other follow Jesus, to help each other uh, learn and discover what it means to to, to grow as, as followers of him. And lastly, mission, because God created us. He created us with a purpose. And so we tell others about what Christ has done for us, but also live life shaped by what Jesus has done for us. Jesus came and served us. Therefore, we go and serve others as well. A few announcements before we get into the text today. Uh, First is coming up after the service, we have a baptism class. Uh, So if you're interested in baptism, um, if you have maybe just become a believer or even like wrestling with the idea of what does it mean to follow Jesus, uh, baptism is the next step after you place your faith in Christ to, um, uh, to, uh, to, to be obedient to him and declaring that God has changed you and made you new. And so this is gonna be right after the service and it's gonna be uh, right about 10.30 and we're gonna be right out this door. It says the office, but it's actually gonna be in the library, which is actually, a, it's a shorter commute. Uh, it's right out the door and straight ahead, okay? So I'll meet you in there about 10.30 and talk about what baptism is. So just join us. If you, even if you didn't sign up for it, just join us for that. Uh, secondly, we have our next membership class coming up. We've called this Discover class in the past, uh, but we just kind of renamed it to make it a little more clear. Uh, it's going to be on Friday, uh, October 14th at six o'clock. It's going to be here. Uh, we will feed you. If you have children, we'll set up childcare for that as well. And if this is if you're, if you're ready to take the next step with City on the Hill, 
or to just discover what we're about, what we believe, our distinctives, what makes us uh, who we are as a church. You're not required to join after going to this class, but it is the first step in our membership process. So we'd love for you to attend to that. Um, you can find out more information at our event page, coahforesthills.org slash events. And then lastly, we have a church retreat coming up toward the end of October, uh, October 21st through 23rd. This is one of my favorite things each year. Um, each year, um, we, we go away to New Hampshire for a weekend. And in fact, if you're new to the church, don't let that be a deterrent. A lot of people have found really good friendships through going to the retreat and staying up late and playing games and sitting around a campfire. Um, all those things are a lot of fun. So uh, registration ends next Sunday. So if you are interested in going, you got to make that decision by next Sunday. So be sure to go to the event page and sign up if you are interested in going on that. Uh, now, this uh, last couple of weeks has been the beginning of school. I have four kids uh, in three different schools, so you know how to pray for me. And uh, we are busy in the mornings. We have a lot going on. And one of the things my kids talk a lot about the first couple of weeks of school is how everything is just review. They're just reviewing what they learned last year. They're, they're banking on the fact you forgot everything over the summer. And, and, so, and so my kids are complaining, gosh, we're just reviewing things. And as we look at Genesis 2 today, it feels a little bit like that because we just covered creation in Genesis chapter 1. So it's like, why are we reviewing this again? Why does the Bible have what seems to be two different creation stories? And some have even believed that because you have a creation story in chapter 1 and a creation story in chapter 2, that they're actually two different stories. There was a first creation and a second creation. Some would say because of the way the Bible was constructed and pulled together and even some of the language differences that these were two different stories. But really, when we think about the Bible, and this is one way that chapter headings and chapter chapter numbers and verse numbers get us in trouble uh, is because when the Bible was originally written, there were no chapter numbers. There were no verse numbers. That wasn't invented until like the 16th century. It was, and it's not a bad thing. It actually helps us categorize and helps us memorize scripture and know where to find something, but it can actually create some unnecessary divisions in our mind. We think that there's a big break between chapter one and chapter two. This is a, an ongoing story. And so rather as seeing this as two different creation stories, saying two different things, we need to imagine this as two different perspectives with two different purposes. It's kind of like having two eyes. You have one eye, if you're looking at an image, both your eyes are looking at a single image in slightly different ways, and your brain begins to process that as one 3D image. That's what we're doing with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We're seeing the same story from slightly different perspectives to give us a more holistic understanding of why God created us. Genesis 1 focuses our attention on God. It focuses our attention on God's purpose, his power, his beauty, his greatness, that God is the purpose of all creation. And at the end of chapter one, we see that we're created in God's image in such a way that we are to reflect that power, purpose, and beauty in, in relation to him. Our life is owed to him. Well, Genesis chapter two actually begins to narrow the focus a little bit toward how God intends us to relate with him how God intends for us to practically relate to him and the world. And if you notice the creation story in chapter two, it's a lot more personal. In fact, even the word used for God, the Lord God, that word is the word Yahweh. We actually sang that without you even knowing it uh, a couple minutes ago. Um, the word Yahweh is the Hebrew name for God. And we don't have a great translation of it in English, but it simply means I am, or I am what I am. God's name is existence itself. God is the purpose of all creation. And so it's a very personal name. And it was a personal name to Israel, who this is written to, as the covenant name that they would relate to God with, a personal name. 
We see how personal this is in verse 7, where it says, Then the Lord God formed the man, like the picture of a, a potter with clay, forming man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This picture of face-to-face intimacy with God in creation. We see a very intimate, personal story of creation. And so as we begin to look at what this means for us, the first application of this responsibility before God, this intimate relationship with God, is about how we work and how we rest. Now, work is a massive part of all of our lives, and here's a really depressing stat. You spend one-fourth of your adult life working. I'm sorry, it's, it's sad. Uh, we spend a quarter of our life working and a grand majority of our life talking about that quarter of our life. When someone asks about your week, what do you typically say? Man, work was tough this week. It was a grind on the job site. I was in the lab. It was, it was, it was really hard. Or maybe you're doing really well. Like, man, I just really feel like I'm fulfilled. I finally finished that project. Some of you are already begin to let your mind wander towards work tomorrow. Even when I said the word work, you had this little, little seize up in, in your soul. Of just, I don't want to do that. Um, and there's a good reason that we do this because God created work. God created work and he created us to work. And so both work and rest are gifts from God when they're used properly. But the trouble is with how we look at work how we view work, the, the, the hold that we allow work to have on our souls and what we believe work will promise us. That our life is not found from God who gives us work as a gift, but we find our hope in what work provides. We find our life in what we do. Not as a gift from him, not as a gift from the, the only God who can give us this. And if you think about the world we live in, you notice that we live in the most advanced point in human history. We're discovering something new every day. We're, we're, we're moving history forward, but yet we might be the most anxious people in human history. We might also be the most dissatisfied people in human history. So I'm going to read a really long quote uh, from A.J. Swoboda, who wrote a book called Subversive Sabbath, The Surprising Power of Rest in a Nonstop World. And this is going to get at this idea. He says, our 24-7, conveniently, uh, 24/7 culture conveniently provides every good and service we want, when we want, how we want. Our time, saving devices, uh, te- technological uh, conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history. Yet with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. Embowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on edge. The result is a hollow culture that, in Paul's words, is ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Increasingly so. Our bodies wear ragged, our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit and be still. We've become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. As I read that, how are you really doing? Is your soul full? Are are you drinking, drinking deeply of the goodness and the grace of God? Are you resting? Do you find your soul hungering and thirsting for God? Not 
hungering and thirsting after getting that next project done at work. Not hungering and thirsting and just hoping that you can get to your next vacation. Not hungering and thirsting for your next job or relationship or the new iPhone. But your soul hungering for Jesus and finding rest in him. Genesis 2 gives us a pattern for how we can work and how it can be a gift and how we can rest in the rest that God promises us and the joy that it points forward to. So this morning, we're going to look at both these ideas of work and rest. At first, let's, let's look at what God teaches us about work. The first thing we see is that work is good. Work is a good thing. Genesis 2 begins with God resting from his creation work. In verse 1, he says that, it says that his uh, work was finished. Um, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And the God was finished from the work he describes in verse 3, that he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Looking back at chapter 1, we saw that God created something out of nothing. He created the world, the lights, the mountains, the trees, the fish in the sea, all the animals, all the vegetation, and ending with the pinnacle of his creation, which is us. So he creates all of these things. It's described as six days. And as he does this, on the seventh day, God rests. God ceases to stop working. And so God describes this, and God does these things, he rests, and then immediately in verse 4 of chapter 2, it talks about who? His people, his children, his generations. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day and the, that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. God created his children to pattern after him the way that he worked and the way that he rested. And so in this second, more narrow telling uh, of the creation story, we see God creating us and he preloads us with a purpose. He preloads us with a purpose to work. I don't know if you've ever, if you buy a new computer, you know, you have all this software that has been preloaded onto your computer. Some of it you don't want. I've never used the the Apple GarageBand app ever. Um, I don't know why I have it. Um, But we, 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 in the same way, we are preloaded with a desire to work. We're preloaded with this because God created us to do this. And we see this with the first humans, that God took Adam and he put him in a garden and he put him there so that he would work. The garden and Eden are actually tell us a lot about the nature of how God had designed us to work. We see that Eden described in uh, verse 8 as the entire land. So Eden is all the entire land that Adam and Eve were to inherit, and the word means delight. So it's a delight in the land, and within the garden was, or within the Eden was a garden. Now, the garden of Eden sometimes can confuse us a little bit. The, Eden, the, garden, the garden was not named Eden, the garden was in Eden. Eden was the entire land, and inside of that was this garden that God gave Adam and Eve to work. Now, a little bit of kind of geography here. We're not real sure exactly where that place was located. We're not sure exactly where. We, we get some, some context clues here. We see in verses 13 and 14, two rivers, if you paid attention in history class, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh, two very famous rivers that were uh, a lot of people fought over that land over time. And so it tells us it was somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere in, in what was often called the Fertile Crescent, the, you know, in that place. And then the other two rivers don't really give us a lot of context. We see the Pishon and the Gihon. 
And it's a little less clear. Some may, maybe believe that the Pishon was actually the Ganges River in India. Some believe that the Gihon may have been the Nile River uh, because it was said to be in Kush. Now, Kush could be Ethiopia, but it could also be a little further east. So we're not really totally sure where it's at, but it's somewhere in that, that Middle Eastern region, somewhere between India and Africa. And it, but what we do know about this area, about Eden, was that it was a very fertile place. And in fact, this was the promised land, the big overlap of where Canaan was that God was going to give to the Hebrew people. And it was a very fertile place because in verse 9, it says that, that um, God made uh, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. You can imagine every possible fruit you've ever imagined, pomegranates and apples and oranges and bananas, all these things growing in this one place. A very fertile place. My, my wife is from Alaska. Nothing grows there. There are like two trees that grow in Alaska. That's it. And they grow like six feet tall um, because the ground isn't fertile. In Eden, the ground would have been fertile and particularly, particularly in the garden, it would have been fertile. There were, there's a river that fed into the garden that split off into these four rivers. So they, they have everything they need to eat. They also have everything that they need to build society. We see in verses 11 and 12, they have, um, they have delium and they have gold and onyx and stone, all these things that were needed to push humanity forward. And this tells us, because of this fruitfulness and this, this fertility of the ground, that God meant for work to be good. It was meant to be done with a joy that mirrored God's satisfied joy in his work. And I don't know about you, whenever you finish a project, maybe it's at home or it's at work, and everything's finally done, what do you do? You exhale. I, re I remember when I finished my master's, I wrote that last paper, and all of a sudden I was like, it's finished. I felt like Frodo with the ring in, in, in Mordor. I was like, it's done. Like, we, we, feel like, we feel like it's finally over. We feel like we've completed a task. And there's this moment where we smile and we take a deep breath, and there's this pride and this excitement that fills us. All work is meant to give us that brief momentary pause to thank God for a job well done. But that's not typically how we experience work, is it? What's your biggest stressor? Work. What do we complain about more than anything else? Work. The point of our conversations, what causes you restlessness? Work. Why is that? We're going to get more into that in, in chapter three, but the reality is that sin has made work a lot harder. And the way that work is described after sin entered the world in chapter three is toil. It was it's backbreaking. It, it's frustrating. There's times where you put in all the effort and you still don't get the promotion. There's times that you do everything right and everything goes wrong. Work before the fall was meant to be enjoyable. K.A. Matthews says that work is a God-given assignment and not a cursed condition. But the good news is that in God redeeming all things, he wants to even redeem work. And all work is good work. If, if work is good, then all types of work have worth. And, and there, are, there are exceptions, obviously. If you're, if you're doing something immoral and that's your job, like that, that's not good work. But all work, can, we can find joy in it no matter what we do. There's all types of work that have value. White-collar work and blue-collar work have value. Work with your hands and work with your mind. Um, work that is more tangible, work that's more, more theoretical. All of these things have value. We see Adam as a blue-collar guy. He's getting down in the dirt. He's a gardener. Jesus, our Savior, was a carpenter. Many of the people who wrote the Scriptures were prophets and priests and writers. We see all of these types of work having value. 
And what Adam is doing as a gardener is he's just doing what God did. He's taking the things that God created and creating something new. So while God creates something out of nothing, Adam took things from the ground and begins to reform them and shape them into something. And that's the second idea about work. Work brings order and flourishing. If you look at verse 5, verse 5 seems like it might be a little out of order because if you looked at the first creation story, we see that God created everything in an order. There were lights, and then there was the sea, and the the sky, and the mountains, and then vegetation, and then people. But verse 5 seems a little out of order. It seems like that those things weren't created until after God created man. Well, a little bit of context here. The word there for small plant is probably more like the idea of crops, lining up corn or lining up wheat. In other words, there was no one there to cultivate and farm the land. God created man and woman to to work the ground, to provide food, and he does this through giving them every type of food and every type of seed, and Adam was to take that and create that and cultivate it. I don't know if you've ever gone to a large-scale farm. It's pretty amazing to look at the different techniques that have come over time that we can take water and take it to a very dry place. We lived in Arizona, and uh, there would be these lush farms in the middle of the desert. It was amazing to watch how this, this simple mandate to work the ground has, has been changed by the way that we've advanced as a culture. God gave him every material necessary for human improvement and for discovery. And the world that God created was a world that needed to be cultivated. Now, that doesn't mean that the world wasn't good. It doesn't mean that the world was imperfect. It was just incomplete for God's purposes. So if you were to look at a grove of trees, no one would look at a grove of trees and say they're bad. And we'll look at them and say that they're, you know, they're imperfect. But when you look at a grove of trees, what do you see? You can see potential. You can take trees and you can make homes. You can build beautiful furniture. You can take trees and make books. You can take trees and keep people warm. God intended for us to work and to discover how to use all the things in our creation to help other people flourish. And what Tim Keller says about work is that the garden actually represents all work because every single one of us, no matter what we do, are taking and rearranging the material that God's given us. If you're you're an architect, you're taking ideas and drawings and making them into something where someone can have a home. If If you're a musician, you're taking dissonant noise and bringing it together under something beautiful. I was blessed this morning by worship. They don't let me sing because I don't have the ability to do that. I I can't bring these noises and sounds together to make harmony and melody and make them sound like something beautiful. God has given you work and he's given you opportunity based on your experience and your education and your temperament and how he formed you. And so how are you using your job to help take the creation that God has given us and bring it into order for other people? Look, you may not be doing your dream job, You may not be doing the thing that you sat there in fourth grade when you wrote that assignment about what do I want to do when I grow up. You may not be doing that. But no matter what you're doing, all work is good work, which means all work can give God glory. The next idea about work is that work is a means of worship. It it points beyond itself. And so in chapter one, we see that work was meant to show God's power and purpose and beauty. And so what our work does is it's meant to do the same thing. We're meant to magnify and to glorify God in our work as we repeat the example that God gave us in his, saying that I'm going to do a good job because I want to give you glory. 
I'm going to do a good job because God created me to do this. I'm going to go to my office tomorrow or to the work site. I'm going to do whatever I can, and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability because I want to give God glory. And when we see work as a means to give God glory, it frees us from work. In a fallen world, what we do is we actually invert the order. Instead of seeing work as a means to worship, we just worship work. We, we think about all the things that our job or our career promise us, all the, things, all the promises that they make that they can't deliver on, the, the sacrifices we make of our time and our family and our energy for the promise of a blessing. That if we just work hard enough that we can feel like we finally have value and purpose and meaning and enough cash in the bank. But what is God doing here by giving us work as a gift? He's saying it's a blessing. It's not what you do that helps you get into the presence of God. It's God's grace. Eden was a place where man and woman could walk with God in his presence, have perfect communion with him. And so work is an invitation for us to trust that God has given us this to glorify him. It becomes a means to bless and to create, not to achieve or to arrive. So God tells us something about work, but he also says something about rest. So let's look at what God teaches us about rest. If you look at verse 7, I'm sorry, uh, verse, verse 2, it says, on, this, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. We see God resting. I think it's really interesting to think about God ceasing from work. Why would God need to rest? Why, w- why would God need to rest? It's not because he's tired. God is infinite. He's all-powerful. He doesn't need to rest like you and I. God can work endlessly. I used to play basketball with this guy in high school named Daniel Jones, and I still hate him a little bit for this. He never got tired, ever. We play basketball, and he would run and run and run and run, and we would call a timeout, and it was not for Daniel Jones. It was for me. Like We were struggling because he never got tired. But maybe rest isn't just about recharging. Alan Ross says this, the idea is more of a celebration of the completion of creation than a rest from labor because unlike humans, God would not need to restore his, his energy by, by resting. God doesn't need rest, but we do. God is infinite. He's boundless. We're finite. We're limited by t- time and space. You and I get tired. So, so God patterned the Sabbath for us. He rested for you. In fact, Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. In other words, we don't just keep the Sabbath to prove ourselves to God. It's a gift from God to us to stop and to slow down. But often we treat the Sabbath like a toddler who just heard the word nap. We do. I I am not tired. Have you ever heard that? I'm not going to sleep, although you clearly need to go to sleep. We don't want to rest, but God blessed the seventh day in verse three, and he, he said he'd make it holy. He made it holy. He, he set it aside. He set it aside to slow us down, to get our minds and our eyes and our focus off of work and turn them towards him. And by doing so, what God shows us is this about rest. Rest is ceasing, not crashing. Rest is ceasing from work, not crashing from work. God chose to stop working. 
I mean, could he have done more? Yes, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. But in his divine sovereignty and his will, he said, this is the work that I have set aside for myself, and this is the work that I'm going to do, and I'm going to cease from it. And he stopped because you and I are intended to work and then to rest. We see this pattern of six days on and one day to rest before God, but you and I choose crashing over ceasing. We tend to avoid rest until our body makes us. We talked about this last week, how we are whole people, meaning that our minds, our souls, our bodies are one in what it means to be made in the image of God. But what you and I do is we work and we work and we work and we work until we just can't anymore. And our bodies tell us that we can't keep going and our bodies end up telling on our souls that our souls are tired. And I'm not talking just being tired. I'm talking about when your body just begins to start shutting down. Everybody on your phone, you have that low power mode, right? When it gets to 20%. What what does low power mode do? It starts shutting down ancillary features that you really don't need to survive. Many of us run right up to the edge. And what happens when when your battery gets down to about 10%, you're actually starting to do damage to your battery. We do the exact same thing when we just crash instead of ceasing from work. But choosing to cease from work in a healthy way does two things. It gives us time to reflect on our work. We don't just work, 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 work for the sake of work. We're able to stop and slow down and thank God for his provision. We're able to see where, why and where we're actually struggling, that maybe it's not that person's fault. It's actually the fact that I just don't get enough coffee in the morning. It's actually me. We're able to look at our work with the right perspective and say, you know, I didn't get everything done this week, but, but that's Okay. It allows us to trust God with what isn't done, saying, Lord, I hand these things to you and I'm going to obey you at your word that if I rest, you will bring life. So rest should be ceasing, not crashing, but also rest should be intentional, not inactive. The idea of setting something aside means you're being intentional. It means that the Sabbath has a purpose. It's a chance for us to celebrate and to worship God. So what was the main way that Adam could worship God? He could thank him for all he'd given him. He could thank him, as verse 7 says, for the breath of life in his lungs. He could thank him for Eden, for for a home, a place to delight in. He could thank him for every tree, for food. He could thank him for the gold and all the bling and the jewelry he might be able to make from that. He could thank God for all those things. So for us, we set aside a Sabbath not to just physically recharged, but to worship God for his goodness to us and to see our need of him. And we do so for renewal. We rest to see renewal happen in our souls. And in one sense, it is recharging your batteries. Like we do need to do things that give us life. And you you need something that's life-giving. It's probably not binge-watching Ted Lasso. It's fun, but it's probably not life-giving. But we need something that's active. It's, there's, what needs to happen is there's a purposeful ceasing from production. Yesterday, I went and played pickleball with a couple of guys from the church, and I'm, st- I'm more sore than I would like to admit. Um, you know that story in Genesis where, where Jacob wrestles with God and he walks with a limp for the rest of his life? We're going to get there if you've never heard that story. I feel that this morning. My hip hurts. Like, but I had a great time. I was able to rest and laugh and relax and get restored by doing something physical. So we need this type of rest and ceasing from production for purpose. But in another sense, what renewal does as we rest is it changes the way that you live. 
It's a pattern meant to change the rest of your life. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What happens when you renew your mind? You live differently. There are all sorts of enemies to rest, and here's what actually taking the time to rest does. It helps you see those for what they are. The enemy of the fact that faster is just better or that more will satisfy you, or that work is your identity. But what happens when we rest and we Sabbath is it's habit-forming. When you take the time to take some time aside and slow down, you see that Jesus is all you need so that when you go back to work on Monday, your heart is settled. When you see that work is a gift and it's not your God and you're able to sit before God, you go to work on Monday and you say, this doesn't define who I am. I'll believe God at his word that I don't just have to keep going. But for us, rest is a moving target. I don't know, but I had a restless week. I'll admit that. It was a tough week for me. I really struggled with restlessness. But this is why God tells us to set aside a day each week to teach us, to slow us down, to give our hearts time to catch up. If you've ever gone on vacation, it takes like half the trip to just let your heart settle down. We set that time aside to train us to do that. And so do you have an intentional plan for Sabbath? If you don't, your schedule will begin to fill itself or you're just going to walk about aimlessly. So let me just give you a few couple things that you can do, a few things you can do to help guide you as you try to take time to Sabbath. One is worship. You're doing it right now. So step one, it's like getting the first answer on your test already put in by your teacher. You get your worshiping. It's a great, great, great thing. Way to go. Uh, we take time to, to stop and slow down and worship God. We do this with other people. Secondly is take it slow. We live in a world of hurry and rush. When you take time to be with God and be with others, just be slow. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to prove. Learn to say no. On those times you set aside, learn to say no to things that are draining. Try to find things that are life-giving. And one, this may just be my favorite, is share a meal. Take time to eat with people. Be be slow. Take time to remember and reflect on, on God's goodness. As we begin to wrap up, just two big takeaways I want us to really press into. The first is that what God provides is sufficient. That's the entire point of working and resting is us admitting that God is sufficient. Uh, what he gives is sufficient. Adam lacked nothing. There's nothing Adam needed. God provided everything he could possibly want, everything he could possibly need, every tree, every material. And so rest is putting that trust into practice, believing that what God has given us is enough. What that means is that God provides everything that you need as well. There's nothing that you need that God has not provided or or will not provide. So what do you fear when you can't stop working? What is it that you struggle with when you can't stop worrying? And so what what are the ways that God has shown you that he's enough? Sabbath gives us that opportunity to to tell God that. The second big takeaway is that you are limited, and that's a good thing. You are limited. You get tired. You need sleep. You need food. You need to refuel. And God built that into you for a reason. Limits are good for us. We're not intended to go on and on and on. And because we're limited people, that means we're dependent people. Because we're limited people, it means we're dependent people, and we're dependent upon the only one who doesn't have limits. Verse 7 says, as God breathes life into us, meaning that the life given to us by the one who has no beginning and who has no end will give us the life that we need. We are dependent upon him. 
He is what we need to thrive. And because we're limited, God tells us no. God tells us no, and he limits us. The garden had two special trees, and we're going to talk a lot more about next week, that were among all the trees that God provided. And it was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these two trees stood in the middle of the garden. And the reason they're in the middle of the garden, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, is that they're in the middle because our limitations are at the very middle of who we are. We're limited people. We need God. And so therefore, he can tell us what to do he can, he, because we're his creation on his terms. And so the tree of life is where God told them to go to find life, to find wisdom, to find everything that they needed to grow, everything that they needed to live before him, that he's the source. Proverbs 3 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. But there's a warning at the end of this passage. Verses 16 and 17 tell us, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We're going to dig in here more next week, but there was one no in a garden full of blessings. God told them that they could eat of any fruit in the garden. They could even go to the tree of life and have their fill, have as much as they wanted from the very hand of God. But God gave them one direct commandment to not do this thing. And the thing about requirements and commandments is they take a relationship. You know, if your parent tells you to do one thing, it's a whole lot different than if a stranger tells you to do it. God can tell us these things. And what the tree of the knowledge of, the good, of good and evil represents is upending how we relate to God. Instead of going to God for wisdom, instead of going to God for, for all that we need, it's the attempt to be God. To not just live under his wisdom, but to be like him in a way that we were never in, intended to be. To try to live as if we don't have limits. God is good to make this command because we are limited. A parent is not hurting their toddler because they won't let them change the oil in the car. That's good because they're not intended to do it. We were not intended to be God over our own lives and act like we don't have limits. So what is God telling you no about? What is God convicting or challenging you about that doesn't line up with his word? What does that say about what you really want? When we fail to work and rest like God commands, what we're doing is we're eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're trying to be something we're not intended to be. But here's why you and I can truly trust God and how we approach work and rest. If you notice, compared to chapter one, there's no end to the seventh day. It doesn't say there was evening and there was morning on the seventh day, which means that the rest that God provides for us is meant to be eternal. This isn't just a one-time thing. It's something God gives us. We're meant to ultimately rest in him. So how do we get that? We get that through the work of Jesus, through the finished work of Jesus on the cross for us, that Jesus died for you, that he did the work that you couldn't ultimately do. He lived a perfect life before the Father so that you could rest in his work. And what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11? He said, come to me, all you who are what? Weary, and I will give you rest. Let's pray.